0: Well, good morning. Great to have you with us this morning. So, what's our new word for December of 2018? Yeah, readiness, the quality of being ready to be generous because lots of people want to be generous, but you have to be ready to be generous. And so, pretty simple concept, but I want to make sure it's clear because I'm going to ask you individually or as a couple or even as a whole family Would you be praying for the next few weeks in this regard? In our community, CFC, and in Jacksonville community, inevitably folks face moments of unexpected need, real physical need. And we have an opportunity as a church to be the presence of Christ, the provision of Christ in that moment if we are ready. And so uh, I want us to pray about how we might, above and beyond what we've already committed to give to the local church, how we would be ready to give to very specifically meet the physical needs of this community, our geographical, geographic community, as they arise throughout the coming year. And so don't decide now, but I'd like for you to pray And then, after a couple weeks of praying, if you would come either on Sunday morning before Christmas, that's the 23rd during our morning services, or that night or the next night for our Christmas Eve or Christmas Eve services, and bring with you in a simple white envelope whatever you said I'd like to give in order for CFC to be ready to be generous to the physical needs that arise in 2019 of this community of this community. And so we'll have a radiosity tree out in the courtyard, guarded, because we're going to, obviously, because we're going to ask you to place gifts in white envelopes on that tree so that then all throughout the coming year, we'll be able to uh, probably a monthly basis show with, share with you. Here's how you making us ready to be generous help people with groceries or gas or rent or electric things that real needs that really surface in our community that we could be the presence of Christ. So I hope that makes sense to you. It's not complicated, it's an extra gift, Radiosity, being ready to be generous because Christmas is obviously all about the readiness of God to be generous to us in the giving of the greatest gift, the gift of his son on our behalf. So that's what radiosity is. And and I want you to be praying about it. And then we'll collect those and have the joy of distributing as God brings needs through the coming year. So can I give you some good news as well? Well, seven of you want good news, the rest of you do, close your ears then. now, great news for you. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Joni Alexander, our almost 20-year director of children's ministry, shared with us that she and her husband were relocating down to South Florida to be with family and grandkids, and we said, uh, we only hardly remember children's ministry with Joni, but we believed that the Lord would provide, and so... I'm pleased to tell you this morning that the Lord has already provided for us an individual who, beginning January 1, be the new director of children's ministry here at Christian Family Chapel, and many of you will recognize her name if you have children here. Her name is Becky Conover. She will be our director of children's ministry. Yeah, so... There's Becky and her husband, Mitch, and their four kids. Some of you are clapping by knowing her, and some of you are clapping by faith, because other people are clapping. I am confident of this. One of the great things that God did for us is long before we knew we had a need, three and a half years ago, Becky started working in children's ministry, part-time staff alongside Joni, so that when we had a need, we would be... Ready. So, what a tremendous gift. Uh, Becky has lots of experience in children's ministry. She knows CFC. She knows CFC Children's Ministry. She's worked alongside Journey with all of the creative elements, so many of the things that make CFC Children's Ministry so great. And she has energy and vision for how God will grow us and lead us in the coming years. So, what a great provision of the Lord in Becky Conover. So, Joni will serve throughout the rest of this year, and we'll kick off the new year with Becky leading in children's ministry. If you know her, please tell her you'll be praying for her. If you haven't had a chance to meet her, we wanted you to see the picture, uh, take you a chance to meet her. She's going to be a great asset to our he- team here at the chapel. So thank you, Lord. It's a great, great, great gift. All right, let's take our Bibles, if we would, and not turn to the Gospel of Mark. Let's take, why? Well, I don't know where else my Bible goes to anymore. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to start. It'll work our way back tomorrow. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we want to start this morning because the final events in the life of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 calls of first importance. So they're last, but they are of first importance. So there in 1 Corinthians 15, if you have a, a mobile device, you can turn to it there. We're going to look at what it says in verses 3 and 4 first. It says there, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the three things he says are of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and buried third, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So we've been at this now for the third week this morning. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first importance Christ died for our sins, and we sought to establish from the scriptures the death of Jesus is of first importance because Jesus paid the penalty for the sin of all the world upon the cross. It's not that Jesus died everyone dies. It's not that he was crucified. Many were crucified. It's that in his death, he took the wrath of God that all of mankind of all time had deserved, you and I included, and he took it on himself as our substitute so that we who deserved it wouldn't receive it when we believed in him. So the first importance of the death of Jesus is not that he died, it's that he died for our sin, according to the scripture. Then because he was dead, what they do? They buried him. And the burial of Jesus is of first importance along with the death because it is the evidence first that Jesus really did die. He really was dead. And second, that those who believe in him really are forgiven. See, the beauty of last week, if you were with us, pretty awesome to have one service outside 10 o'clock. I could get used to that. <laughs> Was that we remembered the power of a burial is that it is dead and gone. It's dead and buried. And that our sin and our slavery to sin is dead and gone. If any man is in Christ, he is the new creature. Old things have passed away. So that we could say, and the scripture gives all of these, if you can see them, that our sin is out of reach and out of sight and out of mind because they were placed in the ground with Christ. Forgiven and set free from slavery to sin. That is the significance of why the burial of Jesus is important. Now, of third importance, no, third of first importance is that he was raised on the third day. Question Does it really matter? I mean, it matter because it's icing on the cake and cake's good, but icing makes it better? Now, hear me clearly, if you have thought, well, our faith is really the death of Jesus and that he was buried, and resurrection is like good Disney, end of the story, it's icing on the cake that make the cake better, that actually isn't true. The resurrection is the pivot point of our faith. I wanted to start in 1 Corinthians 15 because it says of first important death, burial, and resurrection. And then it spends the rest of the chapter explaining why the resurrection of first importance is of first first importance in some sense. I'm going to focus now on two verses, 17 and 18 of 1 Corinthians 15. 17. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, this is how important it is. If he had not been raised, your faith is, it's in vain, it's useless, it's worthless. Those are the three words that get translated there. Useless, worthless, in vain. That's your faith. You are still in your sins. Verse 18 and 19. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who died, in other words, in Christ, They've perished. They don't have eternal life. They perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, and he's not raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. So here's how significant the resurrection is. If he has not been raised, these four truths are a pile that we're going to get buried under. The spiritual importance, I want you to... We're actually going to look at the point two, the first part of point two first before we go back to the narrative. Because the narrative only really matters if we capture this. The spiritual importance of the resurrection of Jesus is that if he was not raised, four things are true. He was a liar. He was a liar because he said he would be raised and then he wasn't. And if Jesus is a liar, then we are still in our sins because he had no capacity to pay for our sin. You see, the whole point of the death of Christ is this. Second Corinthians 5 says it: He who knew no sin became sin for us. But if he's a liar, then he knew sin. And if he knew sin, he could not become sin for us. If the resurrection doesn't happen, the work of the cross doesn't work. He couldn't pay because he had his own debt to pay. He can only pay the certificate of debt that you and I hung on that cross two weeks ago. He can only pay it because he did not have one to pay. If he's a liar, he has one to pay and he can't pay yours. So we'd be still on our sins. And if we're still in our sins because he was a liar, then we are without the hope of eternal life. Say it more b- bluntly. If he's a liar and we're still on our sins, then there's no payment of sin and therefore we're headed to hell. Then we have to endure the wrath of God. Because the death of Jesus was just a death. It was not he died for our sins. He couldn't if Jesus wasn't raised. And if Jesus was not raised, then we're fools. And we should have just stayed home this morning. We are wasting our lives. All this read our Bible junk, all this go to church, all this singing, all this caring for one another, radiosity. Let's just all pun it if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Because it's nothing more than a feel-good thing. Say it one more time. The resurrection of Jesus is not icing on the top of the cake. It's not a feel-good ending to a Disney story. The resurrection of Jesus is the pivot point of our faith. If it did not happen, he's a liar. We're in our sins. We're headed to hell, and we're wasting our lives. I mean, if any of that matters to you. You see how, you see how significant the resurrection of Jesus is? Jeez. And so now, now with maybe an increased awareness, man, did this really happen? Do I have confidence that this really happened? Because it makes a difference. Let's go back to Mark 19. And in Mark 19, we're going to look at the historical account. No, Don't go to Mark 19 because you won't find it. Mark 16. <laughs> we make up words, not chapters. Mark 16 is where we have the historical account, and we're going to read first eight verses. And as we read, we're going to be looking for the evidence for the historical reality of Jesus was raised. All right, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint Jesus, who is obviously already where? He's in the grave. He's in the tomb. Here's what's funny. Verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another as they're going there, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Classic. We bought the stuff. We got up early. We're headed there. And then how are we going to get in? It's like, do you have the keys? I don't have the keys. you have the keys? I don't have the keys. Uh, we're ready, but we're not going to be able to get to the body of Jesus because of that big rock in front of the tomb. You, you see the dilemma? Looking up, verse 4, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe and they were amazed. He said to them, don't be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. Say it with me next words. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, which is kind of funny for Peter, Go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. All right, Paul's right there. We'll look at the rest going forward. You ever seen something or had something happen that you were shocked so much that you couldn't, you were speechless? You may go, Well, only for a second. Well, theirs didn't last that long either. They're astonished and they're gripped with fear and like, oh, but we find that they get over that and then they go tell exactly what they had been told to do. But the the moment is so astounding to them that they can't hardly take it all in because the greatest, and I wonder if you captured this, the greatest physical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is an empty, guarded tomb. Now you may go, no, that is the resurrection. No, no, no. That is the evidence of a resurrection, that there is a guarded, sealed tomb that now is empty. That is what you might call the smoking gun of a resurrection. Because they were afraid that there was going to be a claimed resurrection. So they had Pilate seal the tomb and they had Pilate uh, assign guards to be able to guard the tomb so that this could not happen. They went out of, those who didn't want a claim of resurrection went out of the way to make sure it could not be claimed. And now they have, worse than what they had started with, not an empty, unguarded, unsealed tomb, but an empty, guarded, sealed tomb. That's a smoking gun for a resurrection. Because either Jesus was raised or there's only one other possibility. When when you have an empty tomb that had been guarded and sealed, one of two things happen. Because Because they knew he was dead, right? They had him checked, he was dead. And they knew he was in there. Because they then rolled the stone and set the guard. So he had been dead, and he had been in there, and now he's not. Either he was raised, or Matthew twenty-seven. Oh, excuse me, Matthew twenty-eight. Man, have I got to get my chapters right this morning? Matthew twenty-eight. Matthew twenty-eight gives us the only alternative. Matthew 28, verse 11, it, it picks up the story of the guards and their attempt to go, what are we gonna do with the fact that we have an empty tomb that had been sealed and guarded? Verse 11, it says, now while they, the, the, they are the people that Jesus actually has appeared to and what he's told them to do, while they are on their way, some of the guard that had been there by the tomb, came into the city. By the way, when it says some of the guard, what's that tell you? There was more than one, right? Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. So you could already figure out, even before it says, what has happened. They found out that the, that the guarded tomb was now empty, and they're going, we got to come up with a... Script. We gotta come up with the story. They consult together, and now why are they given a large sum of money? To pay the men to stay the story. Here's the script. Here's the money to ensure that you stay with the script. You're to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, here's what they sell the soldiers. We will win him over and keep you out of trouble. In other words, the soldiers are going, you can give us a bunch of money, but if Pilate kills us because we fell asleep to guard the tomb, that money's not going to serve us. So we need you to talk to Pilate for us, because obviously you have his ear. So they get money, they get confidence of security, and they get a script. We fell asleep, and they stole him. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Is that true? Yeah, that's funny. If people are attempting to to deny the resurrection of Jesus, one of the, really the only reasonable alternatives is that he was stolen. So let's look at the foolishness of that fabricated story. It's, It's the only other option So you got to try to spin it the best that you can. But any, (laughs) any brief evaluation of the story makes you go, seriously? Consider, first of all, that a stolen body of Jesus would require that the same disciples who, at the risk of arrest, had fled, now were returning at the risk of death the disciple chickens had suddenly turned into SEAL Team Six, showing back up as a group to take on a tomb guarded by Roman soldiers. That in and of itself, you go, oh, come on. They ran at the fear of arrest. They're going to show up to take on soldiers. But guess what? It was their lucky night. Because when they got there, they didn't have to take on the soldiers to get the body because they were asleep, all of them. And we know there was more than one. When it says some of them went to see the elders, that means more than one went and more than one stayed. At minimum, a Roman guard would have been four guys. There's lots of reasons you might surmise that there were more than four guards, but at bare minimum, and I'm fine with the minimum, at bare minimum, there are four Roman soldiers who have been charged to guard the tomb, but luckily, they all fell asleep at the same time, even though the falling of sleep and the losing of the body may cost them their life, but hey, I fall asleep all the time, even though my life may be on the line, right? That's absurd, It's absurd that that chickens would have become SEAL Team 6. It's absurd that all the guards would have fallen asleep at the same time. And not just fallen asleep, because I have nodded off during a football game. And then my wife will turn off the TV. Hey, why'd you turn that off? (laughs) Even the taking away of the sound wakes me up. These guys were so dead asleep that multiple men moving what the tech said was an extremely large rock, they slept. All of them slept through it all. It was the lucky of luckiest nights for SEAL Team Six. So, you ever stole, you probably don't want to admit this. You ever break in and steal something? What would be a key? What would be kind of basic to your understanding if you thought, I want to break in and steal something? It would be, I'm going to get in and get out. Because even if the chickens had become suddenly brave enough to take on soldiers who they didn't have to because they had fallen asleep and not only sleep, but in a deep sleep, all of them at the same time equally. If you go get in When are you most vulnerable? When you're inside the tomb. Because if one of them wakes up, now you're all trapped inside. But these guys, SEAL Team 6, was so confident in the sleepiness of the guards that they didn't grab and dash. They grabbed and they go, that's unwrapping. They stayed in the tomb. With the sleeping soldiers outside, and took the time to unwrap Jesus from his burial cloth. Um, that's stupid. <laughs> if you're if you're a thief, that's stupid. You you grab and dash. So uh, the fact that the burial clothes are left behind is actually evidence. Come on, nobody grabs. And unwraps. And then not only the burial clothes left behind, one of those SEAL Team Six members had been taught you make your bed before you go. And they took the face cloth off and they went, just hold up. You gotta fold it neatly and place it where it belongs before we get out of here. The folded face cloth, just greater evidence that this is not what anyone in their right mind would do if they're trying to grab and dash to steal a body. And I haven't even gotten to, if you're trying to prove a case, even beyond a smoking gun, an empty guarded tomb, well, what's your best evidence? witnesses. That's always your best evidence. And what we'll see in the future is the many appearances of the risen Jesus. Many different people in many different places over many different days. Capture that. Many different people. In many different places, over many different days. Not one, hard to pin down, isolated. nobody else was there. An amazing amount of eyewitnesses spread over a period of time. All that to simply say, the physical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is, is absolutely overwhelming. To the point that there are many, many accounts of those who have set out to disprove it who could not ignore the evidence that proved it. And the only reason someone would deny the resurrection of Jesus is not because the evidence is not overwhelming. It's because if you embrace the resurrection of Jesus, then... He is not a liar. And if he's not a liar, then many other things that he said must be true. And I don't want those things to be true. So therefore, Jesus must have been stolen. That's how the lie started. That's how the story started. And that's why people embrace the story today. Because to agree that Jesus really was raised from the dead agrees that he is a truth teller. And if Jesus really is raised from the dead, then one of those truths is he is the way and the truth and the life. That there is no other way to be restored to relationship with God. Folks, that's a that's a significant implication of the, of the resurrection in our present day. When there is a phenomenally high value of tolerance, that it doesn't really matter what you believe, it matters that you genuinely, sincerely believe it. Whatever you believe is fine, as long as you are sincere and consistent with it. That's the virtue of our day. But the resurrection flies in the face of that and says, no, it doesn't matter if you're sincere or not. It matters if it's true or not. And Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and life. There is no other way to the Father. I was crucified, buried, and I will rise again. And the overwhelming evidence is he did. Because he did, not only is he the way, the truth, and life, because he did, the Spirit of God is now in us who believe. The Spirit of God is now in us, and you might want to add, to be clear, who believe. The Spirit of God is in us who believe. Now, this may be a connection that you've never made, and this is significant. How is the Spirit of God in those who believe connected to the resurrection of Jesus? It's connected in this way. Because just hours prior to his death, uh, to his arrest, which led to his death, he had said to his disciples in the upper room during what we think of as the Last Supper, he said to them, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus has said to them very specifically, what's going to happen to me going away is going to be an advantage to you. And that advantage will be the helper. Now, you may know what he's talking about, but question. Did the disciples in that moment understand what Jesus meant when he said, if I go away, the helper will come? They had just learned. Prior, minutes prior, in the same room, with the same group, in the same conversation, around the same meal, he had said, John recorded it, John 14, but it's the same meal that same evening I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. So he had already previously talked to them about the helper and had gone on to say that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. So Jesus has already helped them understand that the helper is the Holy Spirit. And the advantage of Jesus going away is that If he goes away, then the Holy Spirit will come. And if he does not go away, then the Holy Spirit cannot come. Because uh, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. Why? Because he abides with you and will be, future tense, will be where? In you. You see, Jesus has taught them just before he was arrested, before he would then be crucified and buried and then raised, that this will be to your advantage. And it'll be to your advantage because then when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. And relationship with me, watch. Have your eyes, please relationship with me will no longer be the presence of God with you it will then be the presence of God in you and I could give you 18 different illustrations of the difference between with and in but you can figure that one out can't you the dramatic difference between with and in the spirit of God with you will then become the spirit of God in you That's the significance of the resurrection. When the Spirit of God now is in you, you can walk in newness of life. The Spirit of God in a person connected to the resurrection is the key to a person walking in newness of life. Now what we've laid out This morning in the previous two weeks, in these three weeks, is this. Don't miss it. That the gospel is Jesus died for our sins, Jesus was buried, and Jesus was raised on the third day. All three are critical. Don't miss this. All three, death, burial, and resurrection, are critical to the gospel. Let me show you why. Romans chapter 6 says this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Baptism is aligning yourself. It is identifying yourself as one with. So the significance, the significance of the death of Jesus is those who believe in him, their sin, their certificate of debt, we did this two weeks ago, if you were here, their debt is paid for. They are forgiven because of the death of Jesus. That's part of the gospel. But he goes on, therefore, because I've been identified with Christ in death, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So, track with me. The death of Jesus is significant because it's the payment of our debt by which we are forgiven. Because Jesus was dead, he was buried. And we are identified with him burial, in burial because it is the reflection that the old me is gone. It's dead and buried. It's gone. My sin and my slavery to sin are Gone, get out of your head. It's gone. It's out. And we're not going to dig it up because it is out of reach and out of sight and out of mind because it's in the ground with Christ. It's dead and gone. It's buried. But there's more, because the gospel is the death, the burial and the resurrection. Death, payment of sin, burial, my sin and my slavery are gone. Next verse, excuse me, I, did, I didn't finish it. So that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here's the gospel. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. Because he died, he was Buried as evidence that our sin and our slavery is gone. And he was raised and we are raised with him so that we might walk out in newness of life because the old is gone. That's the gospel, folks. That's good news, is it not? What an incredible message of first importance. Death, burial resurrection. Sin paid for. Slavery to sin. The old me gone. Raised to walk in newness of life. That is the fullness of what the gospel grants to us. So that now walking in newness of life, the work of God will now be done through us. And don't miss this. It will be done through us. The work of God will be done through us because the presence of God is in us. Not just with us, in us. One of the hardest promises for you and I to believe is this. Jesus, in that same conversation with his disciples, just before his rest, before his crucifixion, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, Paul's right there. Do you believe in him? His death, his burial, his resurrection. For your forgiveness, for the old being gone, for you to walk in newness. do you believe in Jesus? He who believes in me, the works that I do, this is Jesus speaking, he'll do also. Who? The one who believes in me. And greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. And the key to Jesus going to the Father is that what will happen for us? The Spirit of God will be in us. And so this statement of identity that I taught our high schoolers and junior highers this summer, that I put on your I believe, if you were here two weeks ago, I believe in Jesus. It said in the back side, This. I'm a son of God, forgiven, and set free from slavery to sin. The Spirit of God lives in me to do the work of God through me. I'll say it again. Because he who believes, this is, this is the gospel. I'm a child of God, forgiven, set free from slavery to sin. Why am I stepping when I say that? Because that's the burial. The Spirit of God now lives in me to do the work of God through me. Resurrection. Death, burial, resurrection. When when Matt read earlier in, in Dallas and South from Major Ian Thomas, so grateful because... Uh, One human being that has had the most impact on my own spiritual life, both directly and indirectly, would be this little British guy that probably most of you have never heard of, Major Ian Thomas, who wrote The Indwelling Life of Christ and The Saving Life of Christ and, and communicated this message of Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says this on Jesus. The life he lived qualified him for the death he died. Does that make sense? The perfect life he lived then qualified him for the death he died to be the one who was without sin to be sin for us. So, the life he lived qualified him for the death he died is that gospel. It's part of it. The death he died qualifies you to receive the life that he lived. Oh, now that's even better. The life he lived qualified him for the death that he died. But then the death that he died qualifies you to live the life that he lived, to receive that life, because that is the Holy Spirit, the helper, the another of a like kind. So that, and this is what was so transformational for me, because I thought I understood the Christian life, but I had never understood it in these simple terms. The Christian life is the life That he lived then, lives now, by him, in you. That is just so radically different then. I, I I had understood Jesus died for me, and I was grateful that he would pay the penalty so that I could be forgiven. But that's where my gospel stopped. Just try not to be too bad before you die and go to heaven. I had no idea about the burial. Slavery to sin. Oh, I knew that he was buried. I just didn't know why that mattered to me. But that that my slavery to sin would be broken and that I did not dig up what Christ had paid for and been buried for. And that he was raised. Oh, I believed he was raised. Just didn't know how it related to me. That his resurrection was evidence that I would in him be raised to, not just raised when I die and go to heaven, but raised to walk in newness of life now. So that the Christian life is the life that he lived then, lived now. How? By him in you. This is why what Matt read and Dallas read is that the Christian life apart from this, what did he say? Was dull and sterile. But this is the adventure of living the Christian life. This body becoming the instrument in and through which Jesus himself would live his life in your home and at your work and in your neighborhood and in this body. That we would be the body of Christ because we would be gathered together and because you have believed in Jesus, he lives in you. And because you've believed in Jesus, he lives in you. And because you believe in Jesus, he lives in you. And each of us who have believed, he lives in us. The Christian life is the life that he lived then, lived now. That was true 200 years ago. And until he returns, it'll be true, true 200 years from now. The life he lived then, lived now. How? By him. In the believer. Man, that is so Good that's the Christian life that is not sterile or dull. And I really want to ask you, is your Christian life dull or sterile? Or is it a life of Jesus being lived now in you and through you? That's the invitation to believe in him as the payment for your sin, as the one who broke your slavery to sin And who was raised so that you could walk in newness of life. You could walk in newness of life. And then, when we die, see, I don't want to dismiss this, but this still matters. Then when I die, I have full assurance of the bodily resurrection into eternal life. Because I believe that Jesus not only came to give eternal life for the those who believe, but abundant life to those who believe. The bodily resurrection into eternal life. The most important thing for me in 2018, this is now a personal statement. The most important thing to me in 2018 has been the repetition of this statement in my own personal life. I'm a child of God, forgiven and set free from sin. The spirit of God lives in me to do the work of God through me. That, that has been the most, uh, I've said it to myself at least seven times yesterday. How about you? See, I, want you I, would, I would actually beg you to learn this. So would you say it with me? I'll try and stand out of the way so you can say it. I'm a child of God, forgiven and set free from slavery to sin. The Spirit of God lives in me to do the work of God through me. One more time. I'm a child of God, forgiven and set free from slavery to sin. The Spirit of God lives in me to do the work of God through me. That is the Christian life, Jesus, then and now. So, guys, come and they're going to share with us the elements where we remember the death of Jesus on our behalf. A plate that simply holds some unleavened bread that we will remember the body of Jesus. A cup. And guys, you can begin to pass. I'll grab in a second. A cup that reminds us of the blood of Jesus. As it's passed, I want to invite you. Would you remember, or maybe for the first time declare, I believe in you, Jesus, in your death, and I believe in your burial, and I believe in your resurrection. I'm a child of God, forgiven and set free from slavery to sin. The spirit of God lives in me for the work of God to be done through me. As the men pass, let's declare this incredible truth that I'm a child of God. Yes, I am.